Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored, The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Last week we dealt with the question of should I, or actually the last seven verses we've dealt with, should I marry or remain single? And today we change it a little bit. Can I marry or should I remain single? You know, years ago, just to start off into this text, i got to say this, because this is, a lot of this is just over my head. I've spent hours and hours and hours in these verses. <laughs> I'm going to preach it as I see it. But years ago, I did all the baptizing here, and now our staff does it. And the only problem was they had chess waiters for me. And when I first came here, I wear a size 13, and the chess waiters were size 11. Uh, I felt like a hopeless cripple when I'd walk out every time we'd have baptism. Another problem we had with those waiters was that they were full of holes. Now, that's not good. When you have your suit on, you're going to preach in that suit, and you put the waiters over it. That's not real good to, to preach in wet clothes. And so I started having to change clothes upstairs because that suit, that, 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 uh, those waiters had holes in them. And I remember one day, somebody forgot to turn on the heater in the baptistry. Uh, bless the little girl's heart that was baptized that night. When I walked out into the water... And the water immediately went, ran through those holes into my, on my skin. I thought, whoa, it just took the breath away from me. But the little girl that was baptized that night stepped into that water and she went, <laughs> and I had to say, I understand fully. Come on down, we're going to do this real quick, get you out of here. You say, why do you tell that? Well, when you're wading into the waters of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, my biggest fear is my waders might have holes in them. Now, you've got to understand something. I am not the absolute, never have been, never professed to be. God's Word is. When I preach it, I preach it as I see it. That doesn't mean that's inerrant. The Word is inerrant, not Wayne. So as we get into this, and my prayer today is there's no holes in my waders because I have wrestled with this text. It's not as easy as you first read it. I promise you, it is not. Well, with that said, let's jump into it. In verse 1, we realize that there's been a letter written to the Apostle Paul that we don't have. And we've been dealing with answers to questions that we don't have. For some reason, God saw fit that we not have this letter. And that makes the whole approach to chapter 7 absolutely difficult. <laughs> because we don't have the questions, we only have the answers. And verse 1 through 7, as we saw, is should I marry or should I remain single? And evidently, the whole question wrapped itself around the sexual perverted ideas that they had in their time. Corinth was a polluted, wicked place. And you've got to remember this. 
We're dealing with all kinds of mindsets of people now that are saved, but they're still affected by what's around them. They even seem to have concluded that the touch of woman is not good. The Apostle Paul makes that statement in verse 1. And the word touch is the word that has the idea of with sexual innuendo. In other words, it's not just to touch somebody. It's a difference, as we said over and over again in this series of a hug and a hug. This is to touch somebody with an intention to go further into a sexual experience with that individual. Not a simple touch. And Paul sets the record straight. And he says, yes, this is right, except in the bonds of marriage. And what he does immediately is to make a distinction between the immoralities of the world and sexual intimacy within marriage. And there is a definite difference. And I might want to remind the parents, we're not going to go back and re-preach it, but let me remind the parents, if you don't make that distinction with your children, it will carry them into their marriage and will absolutely affect their marriage in a wrong way someday. You've got to show them the difference of what immorality is and what sexual intimacy is, the beautiful thing that God has created for husband and wife in the marriage bond. And Paul basically brings back to the, to the floor the ideal of marriage, that it's God's idea and that within marriage, this sexual intimacy is a beautiful thing. And so, yes, it's good for a man not to touch a woman if that woman's not his wife, if that woman is outside the marriage bond. But in the marriage bond, it has absolutely nothing to do with that. That's a total different scenario altogether. Well, beginning in verse 8, Paul seems to deal with, now can I marry or remain single? A little bit different. Should I and can I? The first group in verse 8 he addresses is called the un married. Now here's where I wrestle. Who are the unmarried? He says in verse 8, he says there, but I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them to remain even as I. Now who are the unmarried? There are three terms in chapter 7 that caught my attention. The first term of the un, is the unmarried. The second term are the widows. And the third term comes up in verse 25 later on in the chapter, the virgin. The one obviously unmarried and absolutely unawakened in the sexual desire that they have at all. But then who are then the unmarried? The term is agamos. Ah, privative ah means without. Gamos is the word for wedding or for marriage. And this word agamos, without married, is, is used only four times in the New Testament. All four times are found in this chapter. And let me just show you what I, the conclusion that I have come to, that I have wrestled with. Oh, man, I have beaten myself against the wall. But here's the conclusion I have come to, what I think it is, but I'll show you how I came to it. In verse 10 and 11, the word agamos is, is associated with a woman who is divorced. It says in verse 10, But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, let her remain unmarried. There's the term right there. Or else be reconciled to her husband that the husband should not send his wife away. So in that verse, it, it, it's, it's associated with the person who has been divorced. Or the, the unmarried person here would be a person who has been uh, divorced. In verse 32, it's used there again, but there's no clear distinction as to what it's talking about. No qualification. He says, but I want you to be free, in verse 32, from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. There's no clear qualification there. But in verse 34, there may be another qualification that helps me come to a conclusion. 
Verse 34, there is a, 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 a distinct qualification of the unmarried woman. And then it adds the word virgin, as if to say, now we're talking about the same unmarried. However, there's a difference here in this unmarried. This is a virgin. This is a person who has never been married and has had no sexual experience whatsoever. Look at the two translations. You have to look at two, and I'll show you what the other one is. You have the New American Standard, but I'm going to show you the King James Version. And in both translations, this comes out. In, in the New American Standard, it says this, and his interests are divided. Now, the translators picked up a little word there, and I'm not going to mire you up in this, but they picked up a little word that means to divide or to differ, and they translate it into verse 33 rather than bringing it into verse 34. That's all I'm going to say about that. But he says, and his interests are divided. And the woman who is unmarried, now watch, and the virgin, now look at the next, the verb. The verb is not plural. He's not talking about two people here. Is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is, is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. There seems to be a qualification here, even in the New American Standard, that the person who is unmarried is in this situation a virgin. She's never been married, she's never had any sexual experience. Look at the King James Version, I'll have to read it for you because I know most of you don't have that, but look what they say. There is difference also between a wife and a virgin. This is the translation, same exact verse, but a different translation. The unmarried woman, and he's referring to the virgin, careth for the things of the Lord, that she may be holy, both in body and in spirit. But she that is married, referring to the wife, careth for the things of the world, how she may please her husband. In both translations, the term unmarried has to be qualified. In other words, if the unmarried was always speaking of the virgin, the single person who's never been married before, why would he have to qualify that in verse 34? He didn't qualify that in verse 8, but he qualified the term unmarried in verse 34. And there's another point to consider here before we actually I'll show you the conclusion I've come to. Paul makes a distinction in verse 8 between the unmarried and the widows. Now, why does he do that? Now, he could have been doing what God has done throughout his holy word, God has always distinguished between the orphan and the widow. God is a, is a, has a heart towards them. It says in Psalm 68 in verse 5 that God is a father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. That's the very character of God. Widows are always those who, that God favors and brings to a high degree of, of light. He brings up the orphan and he brings up the widow. Now, he could be just doing that. He could be saying the unmarried, and in that term unmarried, those who have never been married before, and he could be just simply adding that widows to that. But he could be doing something else, and this is what I want you to see. He could be distinguishing between the widows and those unmarried in verse 8, signifying that those unmarried in verse 8 are divorced people. In other words, they were divorced. Now they've come to Christ and they're asking the question, the Apostle Paul, can we marry or should we remain single? And he could be saying, hey, both of these two groups, they've been married before. But the widow is in a distinct class different than the unmarried that he speaks of here because they perhaps, if I'm correct, have been divorced. You see, the widow is unmarried because of death, the spouse. But this other person who's unmarried may be unmarried because of divorce. Well, to me, the term unmarried in verse 8 refers to the divorced. 
And then the term widows just simply adds to that. Those that have been married before and now are in the state of being unmarried seem to be asking the question, can we marry now that we're unmarried or should we remain single? So in my mind, there are three categories that Paul refers to. Actually, there are more than three, but there are three that he refers to in chapter 7 of, this, of the unmarried people. There are those who have been divorced. That's one category. There are those who have been widowed. That's a second category. And there are those who are virgins who have never been married before, never had any sexual experience whatsoever. Both you and I know that there could be a fourth category, but he doesn't deal with that in chapter 7. And in answer to their question, Paul, if, he's, if I'm correct, says to those divorced and to those that are widowed, he says that it's good for you to remain as I am. And in this case, he refers to the fact of being single. It's good for you to remain as you are. Remain unmarried as I am unmarried. You know, if it's true that the term unmarried, if I'm correct, then there's no holes in these waiters. If it's true that I'm correct here, it could be that many people have speculated, was Paul ever married? It could be. Now, this is speculation. If you couldn't prove this, this is worth, put a dollar with it and you can get a cup of coffee any place in Chattanooga. You could never prove it in any place whatsoever. So don't ever camp out on it. Don't ever hook anything to it. But could it be, if that's true, that Paul perhaps had either been divorced or widowed someplace in his life? He says in Philippians, I have suffered the loss of all things. And he says, even as I. Who knows? We don't know. He, some people think he was a member of the Sanhedrin. To be a member of the Sanhedrin, you had to be married. So how do we know? I, we don't know. It's total conjecture. And I just simply said that to give me a break right now and to see if you're awake. <laughs> but you'll never be able to prove that. <laughs> don't, don't go to school on it. Don't argue over it. However, it does raise some interesting questions. Well, I'm not going to go any further with that. I want us to get into the three things that Paul says to the unmarried and to the widows. And I, again, I believe the unmarried here are the divorced because of having to qualify that same word later on and by the term virgin in verse 25. Okay, there are three things. Now, whether he is or he isn't, the principles still hold. First of all, Paul is saying to the unmarried, as I see it, to the divorced and the widows, accept the fact that being unmarried is good you. That's a tough thing sometimes to say to people. Let's remember two important things that we've already learned. In verse 6 and verse 7. In verse 6, Paul showed that it is not a command to get married, even though it's God's idea. It's God's ideal even, but it's not a command. God does not command every single person to get married. No, sir. But most will get married because that is by common consent that which God has ordered. But in verse 7, we learn something else, and we have to remember this. He said in the last verse of verse 7, last of the verse, being married is a gift and being single is a gift. And so with the gift goes the grace to bear up under that, whatever state you're in. Paul knew this grace. He said in Philippians 4.11, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Paul had learned that. So whether he was married before or he wasn't married before, that doesn't matter. Paul had learned something that he wants these people to learn, that you, you learn to be content in whatever state you find yourself, the context being whether you're married or whether you're single. Now this is why he says to them in verse 7, Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. Paul's focus was never being single or being married. Paul's focus continuously, as we looked at last time, was to be usable to Christ no matter what the circumstance demanded. Now, 
If people that were single spend as much time developing their relationship with Christ as they do looking for a mate, and if married people would spend as much time seeking intimacy with Christ before they ever desired intimacy with one another, that would rid us of most of the questions people are asking in the book of 1 Corinthians. But people just don't do that. Their focus isn't as Paul's focus was. And that's why Paul says, I wish that all of you were like me. My focus is not sex. My focus is not being married. My focus is not being single. My focus is Christ and being a vessel through which Christ can use. And that becomes the focus of every single person, regardless of whether they're married or whether they're single. Well, he's addressing those that God has allowed to be unmarried, either, either ordered or allowed to be unmarried. And he's saying to them, this is a gift to you. And in that gift comes the enablement to bear up under it. And in that comes something, it's a good thing for you. It's a profitable thing to you. You know, God's will is always good. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove for yourself what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The gift of being unmarried, Paul is addressing, also covers even those who are widowed. And I, I, this is a very sensitive thing. My mom was widowed before she went on to be with the Lord. There are many widows that I'm looking at right now. But a widow can understand something here. That God, out of his love and his concern and his compassion, has said to you, I have chosen to take your loved one on through the valley of death before you. But now, listen, I'm the one controlling your circumstance. I'm the one who loved you. I'm the one who sent my son to die for you. And I'm the one who will satisfy you and fulfill you in every direction of your life until that day that I take you to be with me. And so there's a good thing about being unmarried. It's a painful thing in many times, but it's a good thing. It's a profitable thing. And that's what Paul is saying. You see, the point is God sees it as good. And that's, that's our problem. What God calls good most of the time in our fleshly minds, we call bad. That's the dilemma of humanistic reasoning. We look at it from our perspective. God sees it from his perspective. And he says, it's good for you that you're unmarried. No matter how painful it is, it's good for you. It's a gift God's given to you. And in that gift comes the grace and the enablement to bear up under it. And in it, God can fulfill your every need. You must accept being unmarried as good. And even, as we've studied earlier, as a gift. So the state of being unmarried is a good gift for God. God wouldn't have let it happen had he not had the best in mind for you. Either he ordered it or he allowed it in your life. No matter how you got to the state of being unmarried, accept that state that God has allowed you to be in as good and as a gift. Now the word good in verse 8 is the word kalos. He says, but I say to the unmarried and to the widow that it is good for them if they remain even as I. Now the word good, kalos, is here used in the sense of it is profitable. <laughs> it is profitable. The same way it's used, if you want to turn with me, in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 8 and 9. Turn over to Matthew chapter 18 and verse 8 and verse 9. Very important to see this. It's profitable. Not necessarily not painful, but it's profitable. He says in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 8, and if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, 
cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the eternal fire. The word better, kalos, translated better or profitable here. In Matthew 18 and verse 9, and if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you, Kalos, to enter life with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into the fiery hell. Look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 15. We find that word again, but in the sense of profitable, something that will better you, something that is good for you, not necessarily painless, but profitable. That's very key to understanding this. In the state that you're in, being unmarried, and I believe he's talking to the divorced and to the widows, and he's saying, listen to me, this state is a good, profitable place for you to remain, just like I remain in the state that I'm in. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 15, he says, but I have used none of these things, and I am not writing these things that it may be done so in my case, and then he uses the phrase, for it would be better for me, Kalos, to die than have any man make my boast an empty boast or an empty one. So if you're single, if you're unmarried for whatever reason, then consider it to be profitable. Consider it to be good for you. Now, it's profitable for what? He said it's good that you remain even as I. Now, the word remain here is the word that means to abide in something, to not move out of it. Uh, It's like my parents used to say, Wayne Allen, when they wanted my attention. You see this circle right here? (laughs) Stay right there and don't move. Abide in it. Remain in it. Don't change it. And so in the context, remain in the state of being unmarried. That's a profitable thing for you. That's a good thing, he says, for you. It is profitable even to remain unmarried. And I can hear the wheels turning right now. I can hear people sitting there thinking, profitable? For what? (laughs) Well, he gives one clue. If you look down in verse 32 of chapter 7, he shows you one of the things that it's good for. One of the profits, one of the benefits of remaining unmarried. He says in verse 32 of chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, but I want you to be free from concern. He's talking about here in reference to the fact of unhindered by any other thing. One who is unmarried is is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. In other words, he can be wrapped up totally in that. Now, that's not saying a married man cannot have the same focus, but we all know what he's saying here. If you're a married person, you've got other things that you need to be concerned with. That is your main concern, yes, but how many times do these other things pull you away from that concern? Oh, Brother Wayne, not me. My wife is just perfect, and my, I'm perfect as a husband, and we have perfect children, and we have perfect finances, and we have everything's perfect in our life. Yeah, right. And what else are you lying about? And when you, hey, I was thinking about Christmas, you know, it's like a hurricane. After it's over with, you assess the damage that's been done. <laughs> and some of you sat down with your checkbook and your Quicken program on your computer, and you're saying, oh, my goodness, what has the damage that has been done? And there are things that can take your mind from your total being absorbed in wanting to just please him. He's not saying it can't happen, but what he's saying is you're free from all the hindrances that a married person has in that area to just wrap yourself up in Christ and spend your life being obedient and submissive unto him. You know, he's got to be talking about the older widows here because he says in 1 Timothy 5, verse 14, I say to the younger widows that you should marry and have children. So here, he, 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 to me, he continues to qualify what he's talking about here. 
to those who have been divorced and to those who have been widowed, especially the older ones, spend your life wrapped up in Christ. It's profitable for you. It's good for you to remain even as I am remaining. You know, when my mother uh, was left alone, my father died when I was 23. I can't remember how old my mother was at that time. I think she was 55 and she lived to be 70 before she went on to be with the Lord Jesus. My mother struggled for years wondering how she was going to make it alone. I guess if you'd have preached this to her the first month or so after my dad had gone to be with the Lord, she wouldn't have heard a thing I had said or you had said because she couldn't see anything profitable or good in being left unmarried. And for a long period of time, we stepped into the process wrongly as children trying to play Cupid and trying to help her out. And those of you that have been widowed in here know exactly what I'm talking about. You can't go to visit somebody that somebody doesn't have a good idea of who it is you ought to be married to. And you're doing fine, thank you, and will everybody else just leave you alone? That's how you feel, but nobody else seems to understand that. They haven't been where you are. And here we are trying to match somebody up with my mother when my mother doesn't want to be matched up. And one day she came to that understanding of, of what her purpose in life was. I wish mama had have understood a lot of the things you, you're hearing here and, and I'm hearing, but she didn't. We came from a state that was a very liberal state. Her faith was as pure as anybody's I've ever seen, but she didn't have the information, the teaching a lot of people have had. She didn't even know how to study. I wish we would have had precept back when my mom lived. She didn't have that. But I tell you one thing, her faith was real and her God was real. And one day she called me and she said, Wayne, she said, I've had the most incredible experience. She was in a hospital room. She said, God so filled this room with his presence today. that She said, all I want to do with every breath, with every minute, with every choice for the rest of my life is just be who and where he wants me to be so that one day I can go and be with him. What she was saying basically to me was, back off, big boy, and quit trying to help me out. God is the one who has come to me, and God is the one who supplies my need, and I don't need to be anything else. It's profitable to be unmarried to a widow, but it's also profitable for one who has gone through marriage and has been divorced, and it's hard for us to hear, but that's not what I wrote. That's what he wrote. It's profitable to remain even as I remain. But the second thing I think he's saying here, first of all, to accept the fact that it is good, even though society looks at you and says, oh, you poor thing. You just need to be, have some companionship. Remember the 84-year-old lady I told you about, Miss Boatwright, when we did the book of Romans? And now she came to me one day and she said, Brother Wayne, you're the first preacher I've ever, she came forward in the invitation. That's who comes forward in my invitations, people 80 and over. And she came forward and she said, Brother Wayne, she said, I'm so excited. And I said, what are you excited about? She said, I'm excited because you've taught me that Jesus lives in me. The Holy Spirit of God lives in my life. And I thought to myself, 84 years old and she doesn't know that. Well, I saw her the next Wednesday night at church and she had big old circles under her eyes, wore flat out. And I said, Miss Boatwright, are you all right? You've been sick? And she said, oh, sick? She said, I've been living in that house trailer by myself for all these years and thought I was alone. You taught me from God's word that God lives in me. God, the Holy Spirit, lives in my life. She said, I have absolutely worn his ears off for the last three nights. I have talked about everything that I've been wanting to talk about. He lives in me. And she found a companionship and she found a fulfillment that she didn't even know she had. So it's good. It's good may not be painless, 
But it's good. It's profitable for you to remain as Paul remained. And there, even as I, means very obviously single. Well, secondly, he, I think he's saying, Paul is saying to the unmarried, if you're going to remain this way, that you must accept the fact that your sexual desires must be absolutely under the control of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, this is not a complete teaching on any of this. You've got to have to go to Romans 6, 7, and 8 to get a complete teaching on, on what it means, the body of sin, how to, how to live under its control. But Paul is just making statements here, answering questions that they have asked him. How many times I've been in churches and they said, can we have a question and answer time? And they'll ask me a question and I'll give them an answer and I'm thinking to myself, good. And I, I didn't even touch that subject. I just gave them part of the answer and I didn't even cover the whole thing. That's exactly what Paul's doing here. He's not covering every base. He's just answering questions that they have asked him. He says, but if they do not have self-control, in verse 9, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn. Now, after telling them to remain single, to remain unmarried, is profitable for them, then he puts balance in here with stark reality. But he just adds stark reality to the fact. He says, but if they do not have self-control... The word they refers to those who are unmarried. So you stay the context. The word self-control is the word egkratiefme. <laughs> oh, I blew that one clean out of the water. Brother Sparrow just hangs his head and says, oh, dear God, help the man. Comes from the word ekrates, from in, which is in, and kratos, which is authority in something. To, to be in control over something. And obviously the control over what the something is is the sexual desires that we have. That's been the context since chapter 6. And so he says, hey, you must have self-control. If you're going to remain unmarried, you need to do as I do. And God has gifted me and enabled me to put those desires to death and to live totally for him in the last days of my life. The illustration of the word is in the Greek text. In the secular Greek, it's used in, in the area of appetite, <laughs> a person who has no control over their appetite. Quit looking at me. But here, the appetite is sexual appetite. <laughs> In the secular illustration I used, that was food appetite. But this is sexual appetite. Here's all the proof that you need, by the way, of the intensity of the sexual desire that's in your flesh. It must be put under control. And if you've ever studied Romans 6 and 7, you knew that Paul himself had a struggle with his flesh. But he learned to live up under the grace that God had given to him. He learned to live in the victory he already had in Christ Jesus. You see, God gave us sexual desires. Now, all of you who think that mentioning the word sex in church is wrong, listen to what I just said. God gave us sexual desires. But the problem is, sin perverted them and sin misdirected them. And that's the problem. The desires are not the problem. It's how they're fulfilled and it's the direction you put them in. If you don't put them in the context of where God says they ought to be, then they're sinful desires. But in themselves, when they were first given, they were not. You see, the natural man, the man who is lost and does not know Christ, has sexual desires. And God gave them to him, just like he gave them to us when we were in a lost state. But because of sin, they're out of control and misdirected. Look back in chapter 2 and verse 14. And this is what we were like before we came to know Christ. And in the context of sexual desires, here's how we must see it. In chapter 2 and verse 14. He says in chapter 2 verse 14, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. He doesn't accept them. For they're foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. He will not and he cannot, you see, accept the things of God. 
So there is no control in his life over desires that God has given to him. And therefore, he begins to live as an animal would live. He satisfies them the way he wants to satisfy them. And that's what the flesh always does. Now the word natural there in chapter 2 verse 14 translates the word, Greek word, sukikos. And we studied this when we went through chapter 2. Suki is the word for soul. The suke is the part of man that is immaterial that enables him to relate to the natural world around him. You could say that's the animalistic part of us. The thing that makes us different from the animal's kingdom of the world is that we have a spirit. They do not. They only have this soulish, animalistic desires, instincts and desires. And they're absolutely not under the control of God. They're at free will to be satisfied any way they want to satisfy them. See, the natural man has no control over his desires. Or he can be self-determined, but he can't control them in the sense of how we're speaking of control. He's animalistic when it comes to fulfilling his sexual desires. He's a soulish man. Jesus in Luke chapter 14 and verse 26, and many of us have heard this scripture, says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, cannot be my disciple. But the word life is sukiko or suko. So it's the word suki, the way we're looking at here. In other words, that part of him that acts like an animal and if you're not willing to take that part of you and surrender it to Christ, how in the world do you think you can be a follower of me? How in the world do you think you can be a disciple of me? Because those desires will overtake you and you'll live as the pagans who do not even know me. You see, it's very important to understand this. And so a person who is living in an unmarried state has to learn to conquer those desires has to learn to put them to death, has to learn to walk up under grace. And to those that God has given the gift of being single in the sense of staying single, then God gives the grace enablement to do just that. Back in verse 9 now, 1 Corinthians 7, the word if is important there. It's the little word e, which is a conditional if. It's hypothetical. In other words, there will be some that are unmarried who are going to be set over here in another class here. They have the victory in Christ, but they won't live in it. Their sexual desires are going to control them. And this puts a problem here in the thing. It's stark reality. This is just the way it is. Ideally, everybody ought to be living a certain way, but they don't live that way. But if they do not have self-control, Paul says, and that's, that's an oxymoron. You know an oxymoron? That's an oxymoron because they do have self-control. <laughs> no such thing as them not having self-control. But for the sake of argument, you have it, but they're not exercising it. And so therefore, that's what he's talking about. If they do not have self-control, Paul is balancing his statement now in verse 8. It's profitable for you to remain unmarried, but if you're going to remain unmarried, you must understand that your sexual desires are going to have to be under control. They're going to have to be put to death so that you can be wrapped up in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe he's talking about to the divorce and the older widow. I think he's saying to them, accept the fact that being unmarried is good, but also accept the fact that the sexual desires of our flesh must be under control. Now let me suggest something to you that might give a little bit of credence to where I've arrived in my view, that the unmarried is the divorced. Let me ask you a question. All of us are battered with sexual desires. If you say you're not, <laughs> good for you. <clears throat> Wake up and smell roses, because you are, but you just won't admit it. All of us at some point or time, or, or now it may just be a fiery dart, I'm just saying, all of us have to deal with that in our lives. But let me ask you a question. 
Who is the person who's most susceptible to give in to sexual desire? The virgin of verse 25 who has never been married. That's the only other person he brings into the context. Who has never had any sexual experience at all has never had that latent desire in their flesh awakened in the bonds of marriage? Is that person more susceptible to fall to sexual desire or the person who has been divorced and widowed because they have experienced that in their prior life and now the intensity of it is greater than it could ever be in a single person who's never had it awakened? And I just simply say that because to me, there's a point here. That's what I think he's talking about to the divorced and the widowed, the older widowed, because he's saying to them, hey, it's good for you to stay in the state that I'm in. Stay in the state that I'm in. Stay unmarried. It's profitable for you. I know it's painful, but it's profitable for you. And remember, live dead to those sexual desires. And you say, well, Wayne, why do you have to talk about it as if people have them that are married? And now they, they do have them. Catherine Marshall in her book, and I, I want to tell you something. I thank the Lord for her honesty. But in her book, she wrote that after Peter Marshall, the late Peter Marshall died, she said the biggest problem she had was dealing with the sexual desires that had been awakened in their marriage relationship. And I just state the case. That's why I think he's talking to the divorced and to the older widow. It's good for you to remain just like I am. It's good for you. However, you must have your sexual desires under control. And they will be there. They will be there. From time to time, they'll be more intense. But learn to control them in the grace that God has given to you. Or this is not going to be a good thing for you. It's going to be a very painful thing for you, you see. And then he comes in the third thing he says here, the last part of verse 9. Paul says to the unmarried that you must accept the fact that being unmarried is good, it's profitable. You must accept the fact that your sexual desires must be under control. But thirdly, you must accept the fact that marriage is the only place where the sexual desires may be fulfilled. See, it is good for the, the unmarried, the divorced and the, and the older widow remain unmarried, but there will be a problem, and that problem will be the intensity of these sexual desires and to those who cannot seem to control it. Marriage is better. But now listen to me. Paul doesn't say this because he's only answered a question, but what we know from his other writings, if it agrees with the scriptural guidelines that God has laid out. It has to always agree. Marriage is better if it agrees with God's guidelines as to how you might remarry. Verse 9, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn. Now the way the term let them marry in no way suggests that marriage is only for fulfilling sexual needs. However, the enigma is it's the only place they can be fulfilled, but it's not based on that. As we have studied, there's much more to marriage than this. The term, let them marry, is in the aorist tense. Aorist tense means at a specific time and a specific place, a specific commitment is made for life. One is joined to another for a lifetime. Once for all. And to think that that once for all is nothing more than a bedroom experience, you need to go back and re-examine what the Word of God has to say about marriage. But marriage is the only place to where that sexual desire can be fulfilled. And he says this to the unmarried. He says it to them after already telling them, it's profitable for you to remain as you are. But then he gives that balance. And he says, okay, if you can't control this, and then you have to read into it, 
And if God's word agrees to it and God sends you the proper person and all of this takes place and you have the opportunity, then for you, it's better that you marry, you see. He goes on to say, for it is better to marry than to burn. The word for better there is the word creason, and it's the word means the sense, again, of profitable. Whereas, for those who realize that it's good, who have control over their flesh, it's profitable to stay just like you are if you've been divorced or if you're an older widow. But on the other hand, for those who struggle with the intensity of the, of the sexual desire, and they seem to be not even be able to focus upon the things of God because of this, and, it, and they can't seem to find the victory, God may have for you a person to marry, and if he does raise them up, and if it meets his scriptural guidelines, then for you, it's more profitable for you to marry. It's a present middle infinitive uh, when he says to burn there. The word burning means to burn inwardly. It's the fiery, lustful burning that's inside of people who desire something they cannot have. And he says if that is a, it's a present tense, means it's going on all the time. You, you just can't seem to overcome it. And he says for those kinds of people under the certain circumstances, it is more profitable for them to marry. To burn again is that inward, lustful burning. Marriage is the only place where those kinds of desires can be fulfilled. Well, what have we learned? We've learned an answer, perhaps, to the question, can I marry if I'm divorced or widowed, or should I remain single? Paul would say, it's better that you remain like you are, unmarried. It's better. It's more profitable to you. But it's painful. He didn't say it wasn't painful. He said it's more profitable. But what about my sexual desires? Good point. And here comes the balance. There's some of you that don't seem to learn to live up under grace. You don't seem to be able to live in that with victory which you already have in Christ Jesus. And for that group, yes, under the guidelines that God would give, it's more profitable for you to marry. But remembering that if you're going to remain single, you must live in control of the fleshly desires. You know, Corinth was not much unlike America today, is it? Same kind of questions they were asking then, they're asking today. And you might say, well, Brother Wayne, you didn't, you didn't complete anything you said. There's, there's, there's too many questions I still have. Hey, I said the same thing to Paul after I studied this. But remember, he's only answering questions that were asked of him. When you start studying the answers to every problem that you have, you've got to take the context of all of Scripture. And for a person to marry who's been remarried married before, there are definite guidelines. And don't hang on. That's the next deep water we'll wade into as we get a little further down in the book. I wish I could jump to Philippians and preach on joy for the next two years. This one, buddy, is many places over my head. But you know what I think about? Every time I study, I'm thinking, oh, God, this is so over my head. I thank the Lord for the thought he puts back in my mind. What's over your head is under my feet. Just get before me. I'm the teacher, and I'll reveal it. But I want you to remember something as we walk through these verses. I have never, ever in 16 and a half years of being your pastor ever said, I'm the authority. There may be holes in these waiters. Check them out. Let me know what you see. But if it says what it says, then brother, you better start dealing with it. That's the way the Word of God is. That's the authority. This book is the authority, not this preacher. Whew. I'll tell you what. I'll be glad to get out of chapter 7.
You know, it's funny. I thought I'd speed up the pace. I've slowed it down, and I looked, and there's 30-some verses in this chapter. Do you realize? I'll be 55 in July. I may still be on this verse. It's amazing. Uh, some of you are wondering, oh, but Wayne, if you'll hurry up, I want you to get to chapter 12, 13, and 14. Hang on. I'll outlive you. I mean, you won't be alive when I get there. That'll be in the year 2004, someplace like that. But inch by inch, life's a sense. Yard by yard, life's way too hard. A lot of questions, but I believe God's Word gives answers. You say, well, Wayne, I'm unmarried, and it's painful. God never said it wouldn't be painful, but He did say it's profitable. And it's profitable in the sense that you can fully wrap yourself up in Jesus and learn to live that way, totally absorbed in Him. Why don't you try it if you're unmarried? Just see what God has for you for your days ahead. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org. 